0: Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Yeah, we're reading today from Acts 6, verses 1 to 15. Okay. In those days, when the number of disciples were increasing the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their windows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freed men, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave them as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth, will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intensely at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel.
1: Thank you. Uh, nice to be here. Right, let me pray. Father, thank you for, uh, for your word. Thank you for the book of Acts, for this uh, story of how your spirit breathed on those early disciples and they went on to uh, become the first messengers and the first disciple makers and the first churches and the first ambassadors for you. And uh, we thank you for the blessing they've been because we sit here today, 2,000 years later, because they uh, honoured you and were you. And so, as we think about leadership today, Lord, inspire us and challenge us and motivate us from this passage. Amen. Okay, very good. So, we're finishing a series in the book of Acts. We're taking the early Christians as our inspiration. And we're thinking week one, Acts chapter two, what kind of church could we be? Week two, Acts chapter four, what kind of disciples could we make? Week three, the final week today, what kind of leaders could we have? As a church, we have four values. Mission, discipleship, community, and leadership. We want to prioritize leadership. Why? Because as you look in the book of Acts and these early chapters, the church is an expanding, growing organism. The church should never settle down. The church should never look for comfort as its ultimate recourse. The church should be multiplying and growing and uh, looking to further the gospel. And as the church does that, and as God's spirit breathes on, on the church, leadership is required. So we're going to think, what kind of leaders do we learn about in Acts chapter 6 that God put in place then, and the kind of leaders, therefore, that we should be looking for and praying for in our church as we, God willing, grow and expand, and as we talked about in our vision, start a morning congregation, and over time appoint elders in our church. Uh, if you're thinking, well, I'm not a leader, Steve, or I don't have any great aspirations to be a leader, but you should want the right kind of leaders. So this talk is for everyone, not just for those that aspire. Now, one thing that's immediately noticeable in Acts chapter 6 is that leaders are appointed in response to what God is doing. The reason we have the seven men appointed here in Acts chapter 6 is that the word of God is spreading, and the disciples are seeing people converted, and there's a growing church, and as there's a growing church, they need to appoint the leaders and put structures in place. So... The spirit of God is at work. The life of God is really evident in the church. The whole thing is growing and multiplying and expanding. In response to what God is doing, leadership is put in place. The order is vital. A helpful analogy will come on the screen is the analogy of the trellis and the vine. So the trellis is a structure, dead, doesn't have any life in it. The vine is an organism full of life. If the vine is left to its own devices without a trellis, it will grow spontaneously, but it will become chaotic, and it won't ever grow to its full potential and the beauty we see all around in places when we go when there's vines. If there's no structure in place, the vine can't flourish. But the vine is what is precious. The vine, in this analogy, are the people, the church, the living, breathing organism that God has put his spirit in, that God is growing. So the vine is what is really precious. But the trellis is important, the structures, the communication channels, the decision-making units, the, the, the leaders that you appoint, all that is important so that the vine flourishes. Put simply, the vine is the, work, the word of God and the spirit of God in God's, working in God's people. That's the vine, the word of God and the spirit of God at work in God's people. And when that happens, you need structures so the, grind, the vine can grow. But we must never make the mistake of thinking the trellis is the vine. We're not here to support and uphold structures. We're here to support and uphold the vine that God is growing. Once church structures become redundant, we need to abolish them to get better ones so the vine can grow again. And a mistake the church has made through the history is to not adapt its structures to an adapting vine. So it's all about the vine, it's not all about the structures, but let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater and say structures don't matter. You don't get a a healthy vine unless you have healthy structures. So what kind of leaders, what kind of structures, but more the person, what kind of leaders should we put in place in our church, in any church, based on Acts chapter 6? Well, we'll see five things. Leaders who can handle diversity and tension. Leaders who are diverse and can work in Teams. Leaders who prioritize the word of God and prayer. Leaders who can handle opposition with grace. And leaders who have proven character and anointing. And you're like, Steve, you've never had five points. Well, my first sermon with five (laughs) points. Um, Hopefully it'll be a shorter (laughs) sermon than normal, believe it or not. So first point, leaders that can handle diversity and tension. The reason the leaders in Acts chapter six are appointed is because there's a problem. Tension has arisen Within the church, this early church. Acts, look at verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples were increasing, the Hellenistic Jews, so that's from the Greek back, Hellenistic means Greek, mm. among them complained that Hebraic Jews, Hebraic means Hebrew, so you've got two racial nationalities, both Jewish by religion, different racially. What, uh, so the, the Hellenistic Jews, among them, complained that the Hebraic Jews, because they're widows, the older single women were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Two or three hundred years before the birth of Christ, we, maybe even four hundred years, we had Alexander the Great. And he came, and the Greek, the Greek civilization sort of came and took over... And, uh, and then that became the dominant culture of the day. And as the Greek culture went, then uh, so the language went and the religion went. And so the world was Hellenized. It became, you know, it was, it was the culture that dominated. And then you had to just, ch- the Jewish people then had to go, well, what do we do with this secular culture that's coming into us? And you basically had two responses you had a conservative response and a liberal response. The conservative response was mainly from Jerusalem, the Hebrews, who said, we want nothing to do with the Greek culture. That means contamination. We're Hebrews. We want purity of language, of religion, of culture. And that was mainly the the Jews in in, in Jerusalem. Uh, But then there was all these Jews who, because of the exile and everything else, had been scattered all over the nations where the Greek culture and gods and language were prominent. Now, whilst God's people always said, don't worship the other gods, they took a liberal view towards the culture and the language. And so when they brought their kids up, do you bring your kids up to speak Greek or Aramaic, like the Hebrew ones? And so they chose the liberal view, typically, and said, yeah, we'll adopt those customs. So you have two people groups. You have the conservative Hebrew, Hebraic Jews, and the liberal Hellenistic ones. And they're looking at each other going, oh, we're not sure if I trust you because of your background because of what you believe about this thing that's a secondary issue well whatever was happening obviously this tension had had, had got to such a place where the the greek widows because remember in acts chapter 4 and acts chapter 2 they shared all their possessions and there was all this sharing property and everything well the greek ones were missing out on the food wealth you know the welfare program that church had put together to care for the poor it's important to say, I don't think the apostles did this deliberately as favoritism. I think it was poor administration, because in Acts chapter 2, we learned that 2,000 people got saved. In Acts chapter 4, we learned another 3,000 people got saved. So now you have a church of 5,000 people. That is tough to organize and manage. So it's not surprising that some widows were not cared for in the best way, because the administration, the trellis, had not yet been put in place to make sure that every vulnerable person in church was cared for, which is a priority. So the apostles were overextended and they couldn't handle it all. And maybe there was a language barrier because they're Greek-speaking and the the Hebrew people were Aramaic-speaking by that stage. But this couldn't be ignored. In the Old Testament, God repeatedly says, I'm going to defend the cause of the widow. So it's not something that could be ignored. Caring for the vulnerable in the church is a high priority. The devil was using this poor administration to see if he could drive a wedge in the early church and create factions and divisions through poor administration and the racial tension that had developed. Now, what is remarkable and wise and God-given is that the seven names in Acts chapter 5, you won't pick this up, are all Greek names. They said, we want to make sure that the racially Greek amongst us who speak Greek are represented in the church and cared for by the leaders we appoint. And one of them, and they make a big point of this, Luke, the author, makes a big point, says, and there was Nicholas from Antioch, he wasn't even from a Jewish background, he'd actually got converted. So we're going to have like a real outsider, a real Gentile on the leadership team, so to speak. It was a deliberate Appointment to counterbalance the lack of diversity that existed and to ensure there was no language barrier and no and therefore the simmering tensions would cool down and the vulnerable would be cared for. What wisdom? Before the modern tech companies were into diversity, the early church was into it, you know? Making sure that everyone had a place. The church is beautiful of colour, of background, of, of, and everything needs to be represented, and everyone needs to have their place. What's the lesson for today? In a growing church, in a city like Dublin, which is cosmopolitan, we shouldn't be surprised when we find that there's racial tensions and, and cultural ins- sensitivities that sometimes we find just emerging. Oh, I didn't understand that. I don't do that in my culture. My back. That's normal. They had it in the first church. And we don't run away when we find those cultural and, uh, problems emerging. It's inevitable. So instead of running away when they come, we need to go, what is the devil looking to do? And how can I act in a way that the devil doesn't use natural racial tensions to divide an otherwise growing and healthy church? We must be aware of the devil's schemes. And secondly, We must make godly appointments of leadership so that every people group and every racial background is cared for, listened to, and looked after. It can't be all from the the, the same people. The 12 couldn't handle it all. We need more. Thirdly, as far as is possible, and certainly over time, leadership must represent the diversity of a congregation. Ethnicity, age, gender, socioeconomic background, personality type, so on and so forth. There is no one type of leader that should ever dominate in a church. The church is beautiful and diverse and full of color. Well, let all that be shown by the people that come and by the leaders that lead. Fourthly, if you want to be a leader in a city like Dublin in a church, you have to be ready to be continually charged, have the charge made against you that you're culturally insensitive. Because it's challenging with all the nationalities bouncing up against each other. I got over I didn't quite understand that. In my, in my language we express it like this and in my culture we do like this. Yeah. And so as a leader you have to be very patient and caring and take time to listen and listen and listen. And if you're not prepared for that, and if we as a church are not prepared for that, the devil will get in. May God like he did back then, continue to raise up a diverse group of leaders amongst us at Christ City Church. And I'm already grateful for the ones he has. Point one, leaders can handle diversity and tension. Point two, leaders are diverse and can work in teams. I've mentioned the diversity point already, but what about the teams? Notice there's 12 apostles and there's seven men chosen. Notice that there's a father, son, and spirit. There's three, a community. Notice that when Jesus comes, he gathers around him 12 and then 72, and when he sends them, he sends them in pairs. Notice that in Paul's letters, he's always, always talking, particularly at the end of his letters, about who his missionary team is. It's not just him on his own. He's making this big point, point. and so when he talks about elders, which means pastors or overseers, the same kind of office in the church, those that finally oversee the church, he says, they're always teams. It's never one person doing it in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Whilst the Bible absolutely knows the place of significant leaders who have significant roles and are used mightily by God, those significant leaders are never isolated and never work independently. They work in teams. Even Moses had to be taught by his father-in-law, Jethro, Exodus 18, you have to diversify and spread the workload, it's killing you. Even the great leader Moses had to learn this lesson. It's a team. Leaders cannot lead. Leaders who cannot lead in teams cannot lead in God's church. There is no place for the Lone Ranger, the egomaniac. Leaders must submit to the team that they're leading with. That doesn't mean that leadership is completely flattened out. Paul and Peter clearly rise up amongst the apostles, and Paul gives a special place to Timothy at various points and says, no, you've got to go and do something amongst the leaders. So it's fine to have ultimate leadership, or what often is called the first among equals. That's a godly, wise thing to do. But no one leader is above the team and operates in isolation. We need the wisdom to support the accountability of others. So leaders must be diverse in their makeup, and they must be able to work in teams. Third point, leaders prioritize the word of God and prayer. We see in Acts chapter 6 what then becomes much clearer through the rest of the New Testament, that broadly speaking, there are two types of leadership in church life. Elders or pastors or overseers, different words, who handle the word of God and make sure that the flock, the pastors that have a flock, are well cared for and protected from the wolves who'd come in with false doctrine and division and you know, that kind of stuff. That's the elder's job, the word of God. And then deacons who primarily are in charge of the organization, administration, and practical aspects of church life. And so here in Acts 6, we have that the elders' main responsibility is to teach the word of God and protect the flock from false doctrine. It's God's word that directs and shapes, and by his spirit enlivens the church. So do you see that in verse 7? You have a problem where the apostles might neglect the word of God, so they say, we mustn't do this, we'll appoint people so we can stay focused on the word of God, and then what happens in verse 7? So the word of God spread. Luke is deliberately saying, you prioritize the word of God in a church and it spreads. The danger was the apostles could have been distracted with administrative duties instead of the word of God. And so when they hand this over to the seven and say, no, your job is to make sure the widows in the church are cared for, it's not because it was beneath them. It's not because it, it, it was too little dignity in that job or it's a waste of their time. The exact opposite is because the word of God in the Old Testament said you've gotta care for the widows. They said we've gotta make sure we take this seriously. So it's not, about, it's not about one type of leadership being more important or better. Elders and deacons, those who prioritize the word, those who prioritize organization and administration are both needed, both have a role, both are called. Both the preaching of the word and the caring of widows is essential in the life of a church. But here's the kind of main point here. The ultimate leadership in a church is never to be administrative leadership, it's to be word leadership. Because the word is what leads the people. It's God's word, not the leader's word, it's God's word that leads and feeds and protects and guides the flock. But it's about both teams working together and working in teams. It's often been said, hasn't it? And you might, if you work in different cultures, you know, organizations or businesses, you know, the urgent can overtake the important this is urgent, we got widows. The important, but we mustn't neglect the word of God. And so you've got to go, well, this is what, as, a, as an elder or the final oversight of church, we must make sure we don't neglect that for this urgent need, which also must be taken care of. The potential banana skin in the early church is the devil would have loved to have got the apostles distracted from spreading the word by taking care of the widows. That wasn't the primary task God had given to the 12, they were to pray and preach. And so two, church pastors and elders must be set free from unnecessary administration in order to prioritize prayer and ministry of the word. And we looked at in the first weeks in our church, didn't we, this year, the idea of you know, 1 Corinthians 12, the body, there's all kinds of roles and all kinds of gifts and different people can do different parts and that's vital. By the way, lest I make too much of a distinction, I do want to say Stephen, who's one of the seven, great name, by the way, uh, he uh, he probably gives the best sermon we know in the book of Acts. (laughs) So if you're like, hey, I'm more of a deacon, it doesn't mean you can't be amazingly, uh, you know, give an amazing sermon or, or, or use, you know, be used in, in sharing God's word. Um, he was very proficient by quoting the Old Testament. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, so I don't want to make, I don't want to overstate it, but it is important to helpfully to see that. And everyone, whether you go, listen, I'm more of a deacon, that doesn't mean you can hide behind that and go, I'm not going to speak God's word when I'm asked. That was last week. We're all called to share i uh, witness when we're when, when we're asked. So, leaders who can handle diversity and tension are diverse and can work in teams. Who prioritise the word of God in prayer. Number four, who can hapo, ha, happen handle opposition with grace. Stephen is appointed as one of the seven to look after the widows. He's then slung up in front of the authorities because they seem to be saying like exactly like they said against Jesus. He wants to destroy the temple. And so in Acts chapter 7, we have this amazing sermon, Stephen defending what he's doing. And eventually, they kill him. He's the first Christian martyr. Acts chapter 7, you read it, they kill him. And, um, and Jesus had said, didn't he, to his apostles, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also, John 15. Jesus had said, when I give you this task of spreading the word, you're going to be slaughtered because they slaughtered me. Don't expect anything different if you're a leader in the church. But did you notice verse 15, right at the end of the passage? All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and what did they see as they were slaughtering him? Chapter 7 is they literally slaughtered him, but they start there. And they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Leaders must learn to respond to persecution like Jesus did when he was on a cross, with grace, forgiveness, without anger, bitterness, resentment, or revenge. It's interesting to see how the persecution against Stephen builds. It starts off with a debate. There's two synagogues. We won't get into the detail of these two synagogues, one full of freed slaves and one full of Jewish converts from around the diaspora. Um, But they start trying to debate with him. And uh, they underestimate the caliber of the man, and they can't oppose him. So verse 10, it says, uh, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. But initially, they just wanted to take him down with theology. We're going to, just, we're going to show that you're a fraud. And we're, but they couldn't. So then, it, from trying to just debate with him, it moves to a smear campaign. You know, if we can't beat him in open debate, and if our arguments fail, we're going to throw mud. We're going to spread lies. We're going to stir up trouble. And they turn the crowd against him. So from debate to smear campaign, then in verse 13, they bring false witnesses they're now bringing all kinds of people in to have a go at Stephen who are false witnesses. From debate, to smear campaign, to false witnesses, and then finally chapter 7, you can read it in, tomorrow morning, they kill him. Violence. Thus, the opposition denigrated from theology to slander to violence. In other words, if you want to be a leader in God's church, spreading the word of God, expect a multi-layered attack from the devil... Expects hardship, trials, disappointments, setbacks, people turning against you, your reputation being damaged, people gossiping about you and spreading lies and saying this is what he believes or that's what she's like. And it may not even be true at all. Do you remember Jesus? That's what they did to him. And yet when it happens, your face must shine. Because your whole value, your whole identity, your whole strength, Is not in what people are saying about you, but is in your relationship with the Lord. There's kindness that you don't need to prove yourself, you don't need to justify, you don't do a knee jerk reaction back. And even if your enemies speak a false word about you for false reasons, as Tim Keller has helpfully said, you look for the kernel of truth, even in their false motives and false words, to say, Lord, how are you trying to change me through this? Leaders, you can handle opposition. Who cannot handle opposition with grace are not ready to lead. Five, therefore, you appoint leaders based on proven character and anointing. I want you to notice the descriptions about the seven men they choose, and in particular, Stephen. Verse three, we'll click it on the slides here. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are full of the spirit and wisdom. Verse eight on the slide, they chose Stephen, a man of full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Verse eight, now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen was full, full of the Holy Spirit, wisdom, faith, grace, power. He was a man of character and substance. They couldn't stand up to his wisdom. God, for many years, had worked deeply in his life already, so he was full, plenitude. He wasn't leading out of empty, he was leading out of fullness. And so when they try and kill him, his face shines. He's been anointed by the Holy Spirit. A Scottish preacher 150 years ago or so, Robert Murray McShane, said this on the screen when speaking to a group of ministers, what your people need most is your personal holiness. It's your own relationship with God that counts the most. And that is what Stephen gives. And like Moses, who spent so long in the presence of God, when Moses comes down from the mountain, his face shines, so Stephen must have spent hours in the presence of God, so when they persecuted him, his face shone. He'd been with God, and that had changed him. Three principles were then expanded in the rest of the New Testament. First one, character is way more important than gifting in leadership in the church. It's not necessarily that in the world, In the church, character trumps gifting. Holiness trumps talent. Godliness trumps experience. A leader should primarily be selected because they're full of love, joy, peace, patience, the fruit of the spirit that we see in Stephen. A leader's relationship with God comes first and is healthy and vibrant, and that is what everyone sees. Secondly... Leaders are appointed because they're already recognized as leaders. They're already functioning. They already live and interact and have shining faces in the community, so to speak. People go, no, no, that's the kind of person I want to follow. In fact, I kind of already am, just through natural influence. I look to them. I I think about, you know, I think how they handled that situation, how they made that decision. Yeah, I looked at, now that we're appointing someone that I'm kind of already very much looking to, in a natural, organic way, there's a sort of progression into an official appointment. And thirdly, leaders are ultimately appointed by the Holy Spirit. Luke keeps telling us, and he says it again in verse 55 of chapter 7, that it was the Spirit in Stephen that enabled him to lead. There was anointing for the task. Acts chapter 20, 28, Paul gathers the Ephesian elders together. This is another context, but he's gathering the leaders of the church, the elders, the pastors together, and he says this, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit Has made you overseers. It was the Holy Spirit that appointed the pastors, elders, and overseers. Of course, they were appointed by the people, like we see in Acts chapter 6. People appointed them, but people are only appointing those who were already recognized to be set apart by the Spirit, by the way they lived and acted, and their face shining, and all the rest. So there's a sense in which, even when when we as a church come around over the coming years and appoint leaders for congregations, leadership team elders. We say, no, the Spirit has appointed these people. This isn't just a human institution. We see God's work in their life. So there you have it. What kind of leaders could we have in our church? Five points. Can handle diversity and tension, who are diverse and can work in teams, who prioritize the word of God and prayer, who can handle opposition with grace, and who have proven character and anointing. It's a high bar to leadership, and no one could even dare to try and meet it if it wasn't. For the enabling and empowering of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God in Christ. As we've kept saying for January and now we're in February, we're going to go into March. The Christian life is not even possible if you're trying to do it on your own. Christian leadership, doubly, is not even possible if you try. It's the work of the Spirit in us. It's divine. It's the life of God. It's what he's doing in and through us, not what we do. It's his empowering. I want to reiterate a point I made earlier. As they prioritised prayer and the ministry of word, whilst making sure the widows and the the socially needy were cared for, the conclusion of that little bit, verse 7, is the word of God spread. The disciples grew, the church kept growing. So some applications to finish. I'm calling you as a church to pray that over the coming two, three, four, five years, the Holy Spirit would set apart leaders for us. And particularly as we think about elders and pastors and those kind of roles over the next 12, 24, 36 months, pray that the Spirit might appoint them. Take ownership of this process. Secondly, leadership is vital, but so is following. Not everyone can be a leader. Too many chiefs and not enough Indians is the famous expression. Our culture considers words like following, submitting, being accountable, being under authority as weak and even oppressive. To follow and to submit is despised. Please remember, that is what the world tells you. The Bible says, hey, you know your leader? He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. And he submitted himself to the will of the Father and even to the will of the people when he died on a cross. Submission is no weak thing. Jesus is the ultimate example of a leader and someone who submits. Of course, submission and following must be self-chosen, offered freely and gladly. Leadership can never be assumed or domineering, but must be, as we've seen, through character and influence. But nonetheless, there are two things we see in culture that we must resist. One is wrestling for power. That's not going on here in Acts 6. And two is despising the importance of submission and following. If you can't first follow and submit, why would anyone ever follow and submit to you as a leader? It's in a key... Spe- I was speaking to a wonderful girl, and we were talking about this, and she's not part of this church, and, uh, and we are talking about this, and I said, you know, it's a really important thing that you learn how to submit to your church leaders, and she said, everything in me finds that wrong. That was her expression. She'd grown up in Dublin, well, in Ireland, and, you know, submitting to church, it's just everything seems wrong because our culture says it's wrong, not the Bible. Which one are you going to go to? Thirdly, and this is what I want to end with, let's be aware of the devil's scheme in an expanding, growing church. In the early parts of the book of Acts, the devil is super clever and his attack is multiple. He first of all, do you remember, he goes after them with violence. Peter and John are put in prison and then they're flogged. We looked at that last week. First attack. External violence. Second attack: we haven't had time. Acts chapter five. Anais and Sapphira, greed and hypocrisy, contaminating, dividing the early church through hypocrisy and greed. Third attack: is can I distract the apostles from their primary task of prayer and the word to care for some squabbling widows? That's vitally important. Nothing to denigrate it, but hey, could I get them off track? And, you know, could could we suddenly be focusing purely on administration and practical things rather than the word of God? Do you notice, if the devil can't get you outside through physical persecution, he's going to kill you. I said in the prayer circle before the service, you know, if if you're a Christian in certain parts of Nigeria, you may be killed for your faith today as you worship Jesus. And lots of places in the world. Today, as you go, I'm going to declare the name of Jesus in song, you might be killed. In Ireland, that doesn't happen. We haven't got the outside attack. So how is the devil going to get us if he doesn't get us on the outside? He's going to get us inside. Division, greed, hypocrisy, factions, gossip, lies. We must be aware of the devil's schemes as, God willing, we continue grow. He might take down a leader. He might get us into false doctrine and error. Together we must be aware and say, no, we're focusing on what? Prayer and the ministry of the word. That's how you beat the devil, through prayer and the ministry uh, and and, and the word. So do you want to stand? We're going to pray to finish and we're going to sing. And uh, I want us just to take a moment uh, to to take a pause and just uh, recognize what uh, we've learned from today's passage. Just take a moment, how has the Holy Spirit spoken to you today? How have you been prompted? Where are you feeling comforted and encouraged or convicted or challenged? Like, how are you responding to this? And just take a moment to, uh, to let God work that into you a bit deeper. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the wisdom of those early Christians to, that you'd given them, that when racial tensions came up and needy people were not being cared for, they responded with faith and with wisdom and, and practical, um, practical answers. And I pray that we'd be these people and we'd be these leaders who, as it says about Stephen, are full of the <laughs> Holy Spirit, that we're full of faith, That we're full of love, that our face shines, that we're full of wisdom, that we're full of grace and power, that people might notice in us something different, that, Lord, we are a vine, our church, we're we're not just a human organization organized well, though may we be that. We are a vine that you are breathing your life into by your spirit, and your word is at work in our hearts, and we receive that. And may we be the vine that is, is growing and is vibrant, is zealous, is joyful, is sorrowful as well, and, and we care for one another in our sorrows. And Lord, give us wisdom as a church over the coming years as we put in, naturally, organically, appropriately put structures in place. And that we pray that your vine would grow and we would grow. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.